Welcome back to the Security Conversations podcast. I'm very excited about my guest today, Michelle Kwan, founder and CEO at MKA Cyber. Uh, let's just get that first part out of the way. What is MKA Cyber? What exactly do you do? What's your sweet spot? Well, our sweet spot is security operations. Um, we are a company that is focused entirely on that subject. So we uh, help people assess how they're doing in their security operations. We help them build them. We help them rebuild them. Uh, we also are an MSSP, so we do that for uh, lots of different companies. And uh, we also have a product, which is a, um, a platform tool that helps keep your data organized and your processes in line so that you can better manage your SOC. So you'll, you'll run a SOC for a company as well, or you're just helping them get it set up, making sure it's, it's, it's properly configured, making sure all the, we know about all the problems about in SOCs. And I want to talk a little bit about, you know, some of the issues around excessive alerting, the metrics are a little outdated. It's, they're largely overtaxed. People hate working in SOCs. I mean, I'm, I'm sure you've heard it all and I wanted to get a chance I've to pick your brain it. on it. Yeah, I've heard it all. I think I've, I've got an answer to fix it. And, and yes, we do, we do run people's socks and we also are an MSSP. So we are the sock for many organizations. All right. And uh, before we get to the, the hard questions on the uh, nitty gritty on the sock, your career path has been super interesting to me. Um, you came from a, t- talk to me about uh, uh, high school days. Did you already? Did you always know you were technical? Was 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 math your thing? Was well, this a natural I'll, career path? Math was my thing. I don't know that I ever thought I was going to do that. I mean, I came. I was come from a period of time uh, where girls really didn't think we were going to do that. So I'm I'm pretty old. <laughs> we are uh, all old. <laughs> so in the in the in the late seventies. Uh, girls really weren't thinking about being uh, technical people. And um, that's not how I got into it. Um, I went to college. I have a, a Korean father who um, was definitely uh, a lot of pressure uh, to do well. And we had a deal. I could stay in college and he would pay for it as long as I got L- all A's and B's. Um, I was horrible at French after six years of French, and uh, she gave me a B, uh, C plus, and that was the end of college for me. So I exited college, um, was in the mall. Were you uh, studying computer science there? Oh no, no, no. I what was, was. What was your major? It was, you know, chemistry leading to medicine, of course, because oh, okay. I, had, I had a Korean father, so <laughs> this was the path. Um, and, uh, I took a logic test in the mall for a computer school and ended up doing really well in computer school, ended up going, doing really well, um, became an assembler programmer. So by the time I was 19, I was an assembler programmer. And, yeah, go ahead. So I've, I've done everything from, uh, I worked on the first automated cash register system. I did large mainframe operating system work. I moved into network engineering and Java development. I helped, I worked on or I managed the development of a large dial access network 
uh, NAS configuration project for uh, a dial access network platform provider. Um, so I, I did a lot of development, a lot of really technical things, operating system, network stuff. And then I realized I'd hit a ceiling that without my degrees, I wasn't going to be anything more than a development manager. So I went back to school. On I heard age. that you went back to school at the age of 40 with kids. With four kids. With four kids. How was that? What was that grind like? Because I'm trying to get a sense of, uh, you know, so we, we, there's a lot of talk in the industry about uh, challenges to women uh, succeeding in our industry, progressing in our industry at 40 oh, years it doesn't have to do with our fortitude. It has to do with opportunity. Right. <laughs> um, no, I, I, I managed to do that juggle and I worked also. So I worked, I went to school, I had four children and I finished my undergrad and my master's degree and a certificate in IA in three years. That's fantastic. Um, yeah. and, and you did stints at RSA before going into government. No, after, 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 okay. right into government after my degrees because I went on a, a scholarship for service, government scholarship. So I had to pay the government back by working for them. So I went into DOJ first as their director of wireless security because my master's was wrapped around building antennas and hacking wireless. So I went into uh, to that and moved up to the deputy CISO position and built the Justice Security Operations Center there. And that was and your introduction to the SOC space. That's right. And then I went to uh, DHS as the director of U.S. CERT. I came out of that stint and worked for RSA for a year as their um, VP of federal. And then I went uh, right into MK Cyber. We built this company right after that. That's fantastic. So t tell me, why did you choose the socks? It just seems to me, for, as an out, from an outsider's perspective and just talking to CISOs and, and some practitioners, that this is the most boring place to be in. <laughs> Actually, uh, it's the hub of security. It is the hub of security, but let's dig into, uh, let's dig into the state of the SOC, if you don't mind. Um, I, I've sure. done a lot of studying and reading on... Um, on, on the state of the SOC, talked to a lot of folks about SOC implementations and some of the headaches there. And the general feeling, and correct me if I'm wrong, or, or maybe we can agree and disagree, is that uh, the analysts are overwhelmed by alerts. And we have, in the midst of this skills shortage, we, we, we're not, we don't have enough quality talent to handle just this overwhelming of alerts. On top of that, it takes on average, four to five hours to really triage and, and close a ticket from from one of these uh, hundreds or thousands or millions of alerts generated every day. Uh, how 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 is that scaling, and and how do we address this issue of um, of burnout? Because that's the that's the other word I keep hearing all the time about SOC analysts is that it, this is boring, repetitive work that no one likes. Uh, we can't find enough proper people to replace them, and we're leading to burnout. Is that all true? Am I in a poorly run SOC? That's absolutely true. In a SOC that doesn't use the watchtower methodology, that is absolutely true. That does not exist in any of my SOCs. 
what is a what is the difference between a poorly run sock and a well configured well set up sock what's the well a, a poorly run sock is a sock that's run by what i call a hero someone who's really good at being an analyst but cherry picks and does what that analyst wants to do there are no processes there may be playbooks but they're in the drawer so what does that what good does that do to have paper playbooks and it's a place where there is not good visibility, they don't have good data, and that they use data feeds instead of curating their content for their security architecture. In those situations, you have a plethora of unconnected, false lots high false positive, and a ridiculous number of alerts that may have nothing to do with you. If you take the time to curate your threat intelligence up front, create content for the things that you need to be looking for, understand what you need to be looking for based on your threat model, and tag that content and that threat intel with what we call use cases, or you could think of them as attack types. You can then begin to sort your data. Once you sort your data and you have good data because you have created the content, the alerts, the lists, you have created that content, those signatures. Now you create your own SIM content. The SIM content is based and organized on those use cases. You can then develop process flows for your analysts so your analysts can then follow the process flows and use the organized data, they can then detect more quickly, more accurately, less false positive, less chasing the rabbit, and you can then report statistics and, and you can develop metrics because you have a process flow and you can actually track. So the object of the SOC game is not, oh, it's a mess, let's throw it out, we don't have enough people. We're doing it wrong. The object of the game is how do you organize and manage the process. Right, but a security director or someone on the ground will tell you, listen, I'm getting, let's say, let's call it thousands of alerts. Um, uh, uh, let, me, let me walk you through a sample scenario that a uh, 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 SOC practitioner walked me through. Uh, a phishing email uh, pops in, triggers an alert, comes into my SOC. Uh, it takes me on average another half an hour just to begin the assessment, check the links, check the attachments, uh, about two, two and a half hours to in investigate which endpoints might be infected. On, 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 on average, it takes about four, sometimes five hours to close that investigation, to go scan, see which who may be infected, what needs to be taken offline, what needs to be cleaned and rebuilt, and so on. If we're at five hours per incident, um, uh, in 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 a, in a typical sock scenario, uh, how do you manage that when you're getting these alerts? We don't see that. That's five minutes for us. Okay, so so walk me through your your in a perfect uh, perfectly set up sock. What is the typical scenario between alert to complete mitigation? Five minutes. How is that possible? Because we do our homework up front. We have a platform that we use the Watchtower platform that allows us to curate the threat intelligence, create the content. So 
We create those rules in O365. We create the IDS signatures. We create the black hole list. We tie all this content together. We tag it with use cases. We store it in a database so that when we get an alert on a specific IP address, we know the connections because it's in our database. We don't have to go searching around. We actually understand the data before the pop happens. That's critical and important, and most SOCs don't do that. What they do is that repetitive thing that you just talked about over and over and over and over and over again. What a waste of time and money. And yes, that's boring and repetitive. We don't have to do that because we do our homework up front. We create the content up front. If we have to create new content, we create new content. It's not scalable. You, you're absolutely right. I love your story because that but, is but, scalable. But Michelle, Michelle, this is what I'm hearing from everyone. It just sounds to me like you're saying we have a ninety percent of the people I'm talking to have not properly set up their SOC or have not yeah. thought through all the metrics, all the content integrations, well, all thought, this. They've thought through a lot, but we've built a product. We have. I have taken my entire security career in developing SOC processes, in understanding uh, use cases, and I've developed a platform that can be deployed in 30 minutes and basically deploy a SOC. This is, this is the organization and the strategy that's needed going forward. That's why we opened this company, because this type of SOC organization, this type of repeatable methodology is so desperately needed. We're being sold every day on take this data feed, take this data feed, take these three free signatures, take this free content. That just creates a plethora of noise. In yeah. order to detect, you have to have well-written, well-organized content. So good signatures. And that signatures, hey, that signatures related to these black hole lists. The, these black hole lists are related to these domains and these IP addresses. And oh, by the way, we've seen these in these seven different types of attacks. And these people have been prone to them before. It's all about the data. If you understand the data, if you understand the processes, you can do this in a good way. You don't have to reinvent it over and over and over again. Once you've done it, and we've done it, you can do it a million times. How are you addressing or how should a, a, a CISO, someone responsible for managing a SOC in this environment, this mess of uh, integration across endpoints and networks? It's, it seems also to be a, another major pain point where it's, you know, just getting some sort of real deeply integrated investigation across servers, networks, all these endpoints are not being implemented in a meaningful way. Um, there's still a significant amount of manual work required to tie all this. Well, we have something called a maturity model matrix assessment that we do for organizations where we take their threat model and we marry that with the attack types or use cases that would, would be their highest priorities or their priorities, what they would be detecting for. We then know the data that they would need in order to detect that. And we assess whether it's 
segment by segment or whether it's, you know, three companies that have come together and we have three different networks to look at or whether it's one network. And we assess whether or not they have the data, they have the visibility to detect those uh, attack types. We enumerate that data through their SIM. We look at data outside of their SIM and we give them a maturity uh, assessment or a rating. So we give them a percentage of capability to detect those different tax types of attack types. From there, you can understand whether you need to rebuild your security architecture or enhance your security architecture, whether the tools you're paying for are the right tools, or whether you need to turn logging on in places. And it also helps you understand how you need to adjust your content and adjust your SIM. So this maturity assessment is a way of assessing those problems, those visibility gaps that most organizations are seeing and put you on a roadmap to improving that. That's a big portion of what has to be done when you accept the Watchtower methodology. And speaking of metrics and methodology, how, how, how would I know that my incident response and SOC effectiveness is on point? What are, what, what are, what are, is there like a specific standard uh, around metrics being used today? Are they effective? Oh, it's not about, it's not about standards. Um, the reason people cannot do that measurement is because they're not using process flow. Unless you're using a process flow tool that has SOC process baked in it and you can measure the different stages of that process, you can't gather statistics on your how well your staff is performing. You have to have process flow. You have to understand what you want them to do before you can measure that. And that's the biggest problem these days is that... Yeah, today they're telling me that all these measurements... Them to do, so they can't measure it. Yeah, they're telling me that all the measurements or the existing measurements are ineffective, archaic, and worse, it, it reinforces uh, uh, bad behaviors. Right. So if you look at our dashboards, and, and we have what we call widget dashboards, so we can create and change our dashboards at any time, depending upon what we want to look at. You know, do I want to know how many of how many of my... Uh, oh, how many, how many of my tickets are in, uh, alert stage? How many are in event stage? How many of them are actual incidents? Um, how long have they been there? What, what analyst is in there? Uh, what stage of the ticket or the process flow is the analyst in? Are they in investigation? Are they in an IR state? Um, how long has the ticket been open? How long have they been in investigation? What data sources are they missing? I can do all of that on my platform. I can also go back and look how many tickets are related to this IP address or this domain, how many of these have uh, similar pieces of malware, all of those things we can do because we have a platform, we have process flow, our data is organized. I can even look at, uh, so I have this specific type of phishing uh, incident and how, men, how many are still open and I can track that one specific phishing escapade because you know some of them come in batches of hundreds and you want to make sure you know how many of them remediated how many have had password changes how many of them have become a part of the spamming uh spamming bot i can create i can collect all that statistic because i have a process flow because my analysts are following a process and i can measure them anywhere within that process i can measure the data they're collecting the data that they're using 
So it's absolutely doable. We do it every day. It's done in our product, the Watchtower. And, you know, this does not have to be the problem that you you gave me the story of. I love that story because we've solved that problem. This is what everyone is talking about. Um, That's why I want them to call me. <laughs> <laughs> how much, how much, uh, of, how many of your customers or how much do uh, SOCs handle threat hunting as more of a proactive, let me go look for what I what I suspect may be targeting me versus just being a reactive signature-based uh, responding to tickets? Well, we put hunting in as what uh, one of our rotations. So we rotate our analysts through all of the different attack types so that they don't get stale and they don't get bored, so that they, they, we don't do tiers. We do everything in what we call towers. We rotate them across customers. We rotate them across events so that they get lots of different broad experience and that they grow. And we, we have hunting as one of those use cases. And so using third-party data? We hunt all the time so that we use all different methods of hunting and we hunt all the time. You have to hunt so that you can then improve your, your use cases and improve your detection uh, processes and make them repeatable. If you're hunting just for the sake of hunting and being cool, that's not a reason. If you're hunting so that you can make detecting those things repeatable and that any analyst on your floor can do it, that's why you should be hunting. And that's what we do when we hunt. How many of how many of the socks out there today are just relying entirely on a signature-based approach versus this hunting, using TTPs, making sure you understand the context of these threats? Um, instead of this heavy reliance on indicators and static signatures? I think most most SOCs today are just signature-based. And I think most SOCs today, even if they're hunting, are disorganized messes. And I think the only way to move a SOC forward is to get organized, to actually understand your threat model. If you don't understand your threat model, what the heck are you hunting for? Understand that threat model. And the other part that we do that most places don't do is we understand our vulnerability state. When we look at threat intel and we have an IOC, we create a signature for that IOC or we create a black hole, we create a a mesh of content for that IOC. We also understand how it maps to what CVE and we understand what the status of that CVE is in in their scan data. So we can tell them how the the how much it will affect them. You have 25 boxes that are vulnerable because they don't have this patch that's related to the CVE that's related to this IOC. So that's why I say we're the hub of security. If you marry your threat model, you cultivate your content for your security architecture. You understand your vulnerability state. You have a process flow for your analysts to follow. You understand the remediation steps, and then you can do statistics and reporting on it. Now, that's a SOC, and that's what we do. That's what our platform does. That's what our MSSP does. Uh, it, all re- it all depends on what your threat model is. Uh, but from company to company, it will vary. Some companies don't even have to go hunting. They might just be... Uh, and honestly, the, th- the threat models are not that different from company to company. I mean, it, it really the, where the threat model changes is... If it's just an enterprise email, uh, enterprise support network, 
it's usually pretty close. There's some caveats and difference depending upon your high value risk targets. So if you have high value risk targets in your your systems or the data you're storing, like in a, in a medical situation, or if you have uh, high value targets in the people that work for you, um, those types of things can change your threat model. The other things that, that uh, change your threat model is if you're using your system for an operational purpose, not an enterprise purpose. And we monitor several networks that are what does that mean? Like networks. So networks that control uh, a different types of machines, IoT type networks, um, whether they are, um, you know, networks that control um, stoplights or, or whether they're networks that control um, different types of a pipeline. You know, those types of networks that are operational in, na- in nature uh, also need monitoring and they have a different threat model than an enterprise network. So depending right. on the threat model, you can then look at the types of attacks that you'll be looking for. The other thing you also have to be concerned with is, am I going to combat those opportunistic types of attacks that are really attacking my employees? Or am I going to be looking for those attacks that are targeted for my enterprise or my company, my mission, my purpose? Mm-hmm. And you have to say, am I going to take a very strong position with my employees and my policies and my prevention to keep that opportunistic type of attack down so that I can see that targeted type of attack and focus my money and my resources on the targeted type of attack. And once companies decide that they're going to do that, also the the noise comes down. But that's all a part of threat modeling and understanding the attack types that will happen to the network. Okay, I have two more things on, on the top of my list as it relates to socks that I wanted to ask you about. The big drive, obviously, is to uh, find the the efficiencies that you can have through automation. And a lot of the socks are driving more and more into automating a lot of these laborious processes. However, the gap between like the theory of doing it and the practice of doing it remains, as you'd imagine, uh, large. What are... What are some of the uh, opportunities for automation in the SOC that you think is is practical and not necessarily easy to implement, but implementable? So automation is failing today because we're not organized. Automation is failing today because they don't have processes. Once you have the processes and once you have organized your data, there are a plethora of places to use automation. You can automate away uh, lots of lookup, lots of confirmation, um, even creating signatures, even deploying security architecture uh, material. But until you organize your processes and organize your data and organize the content in your security architecture and understand how you're going to do that through your threat model, you can't automate. So automation today is failing because we're trying to put the cart before the horse. We're trying to automate before we organize. And if you organize, then you can automate. One last question. How do you and your uh, and your people cut through the noise? How do you determine like what's important? Should we pay attention to meltdown and spectro when in reality, uh, you know, 99% of all attacks come through these kind of four basic buckets of phishing and password reuse and some of the other basic problems we face? How do you... 
how do you uh, uh, set up your processes uh, amidst all this noise and media headlines media headlines about breaches and latest fancy fancy zero days versus just doing the blocking and tackling on on the important things what is the balance when you think about this it's not a balance it's a matter of understanding the threat model it's a it's a matter of understanding the attacks that will happen to this organization it's about understanding the organization what devices do they have what operating systems do they use what databases do they use how what applications do they use what is their attack surface look like and then tying that into developing the right content so that you based on their threat model you've used those IOCs that you feel will most will most likely attack this enterprise and you use that curated content to then create clean alerts um it's not one or the other it's what is what is the right thing to look for and um that that is doing work up front um not work not looking at you know not loading your 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 sensors up with everything you could possibly look at and and you know arming yourself for the barrage that's going to hit that's a ridiculous method um you have to do the work up front you have to do the work in the threat intel you have to get get your content straight so that you ha- can approach this process in an organized methodical way okay let's just switch gears tell me about your personal interest and drive around uh, diversity and cybersecurity uh did you personally have any major roadblocks that you tied into uh, i'm a woman is this a, a, a legitimate beef that we're hearing from women especially younger women trying to break into the industry that uh, i don't belong I, there's this imposter syndrome that creeps in that blocks people from because I, i go back to uh, computer science uh, enrollments at universities and the numbers there are pretty low uh, even well, in the security I'll- space I'll have to tell you that um it it's kind of pro- hard, probably hard for me to break down what part of my diverse nature cuz you can't see me so you can't tell how diverse <laughs> I am um but I'm a very diverse person so who's to know what pieces and parts of my diversity um cause issues um but I will tell you that um you know we haven't come a long way baby I I face diversity issues in my life every day it's not a it's not it's not just in my career this is it's a challenge uh being who i am just in life uh, but i overcome that and i think we are overcoming that um with steps um important steps that everyone can take and i think one of the reasons i really focused this focused on this is that i it's not necessarily because i saw personal strife it's because i saw that our field was not a diverse field. If if you were standing outside of Moscone West this week and you saw the sea of white guys coming out of the Moscone West and you had a hard time seeing any diversity in that. I had a I had a startling experience. I had a midday lunch over at the W and I was sitting there and waiting for my um for for the person to show up and I looked across the room at uh, uh, at the suits at tables doing business deals or doing their business meetings. It was so startlingly disappointing it was just all older white guys in black suits and 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 Mike the guy was having lunch with showed up and he looked across and he says there's our industry and it well and it, it's a, it's a, it's a it's troubling 
And that's why um, we started the Cybersecurity Diversity Foundation. Um, several friends in the industry um, did this along with me, and uh, we really were looking at how do we change uh, this culture. And uh, we, uh, we've done some really impressive things, I mean, from uh, lots of scholarships to, uh, I mean, if you look at my company at, at MK Cyber, we actually wrote it into our bylaws that uh, we have to interview at least one person of diversity for any board seat or C-level position. It may seem small, but it's created such a diverse board and such a diverse C-level here at my company. We also do um, and promote um, uh, what I call uh, anonymous hiring. So we don't see any any what the person is diversity-wise until there's the in-person interview or the phone interview. So we sanitize the resume and we communicate with them uh, through a, a, a third person so that the hiring manager never knows the diversity of the person until the person comes in person. And that allows us to pick a person based on technical competency. Mm-hmm. Uh, so working in this direction of trying to um, increase diversity um, by really facing our unconscious bias and trying to eliminate that as much as we can, um, that's really going to help us a lot. But there are a lot of other things we need to do too, but that's just what we're working on. Uh, through no, the- that, that's impressive, and you have to be all in and committed to it, because I think like the NFL also has this. You have yes. to interview a, a, a head for all your head coaching or open executive positions. You have to interview someone of color. And it, it, it becomes a kind of like, okay, let me just bring this guy and waste his time. There's no way they're going to hire that guy. It, it has to be like a real legitimate commitment if more companies are going to follow your example of. It has to uh, be a commitment. That's called the Rooney Rule, and that's exactly mm-hmm. what we modeled it after. And we, we absolutely have to be committed to it. And it's not just taking these steps. It's also talking about it, being open and transparent about it, you know, reminding each other that we do we do have unconscious biases and we have to be careful of that we have to to really do some introspection and think about it you know those are just as important as putting the rules in place um but there's more than that i mean i would love to see conferences move to an anonymous type of 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 conference uh you know Putting of talks, yeah. Picking of talks. I would love for them to go to that because it's very subjective today. Yeah, one of the disappointing things today is that more and more companies are, I have people reaching out to me, hey, I need women speakers to be at my conference. So now it's become a PR exercise rather than a concerted, dedicated effort to really address it. Uh, you know, some people are addressing it through blind submissions and we don't even know who the submitter is. Um Really, there, nope. there also is a bigger problem, Michelle, that women are not submitting, or they're well, not—they're not either motivated or empowered to believe that they belong and submit. Because I, I serve on the review board for quite a few conferences, and just the bare open call for papers, the numbers are really, really low of choices. Well, I think if you look at the the percent, percentage of women in this field, and you you'll see that that conference submissions in general are going down because of the selection process, whether it's a woman or a man. Mm-hmm. And I think conference 
conference selection, uh, conference talk selections, just the way we do that in general needs to change. And I think if we keep diversity in mind while we change those processes, we'll see improvements in conferences. Plus, you have to you have to also admit there are too many conferences. There are way, way, way too many conferences. But I think a bigger issue is just empowering women, or empowering really smart, talented women in our industry to know that they belong. I, I've approached women and said, why aren't you doing this talk? We would have a conversation at RSA about something really interesting and fascinating they're working on. I was like, wow, this would be a great talk for Black Hat. And they're like, eh, I don't really belong with Black Hat. I, there's, a, there's just a, I don't know what it is. There's a certain fear. There's a certain uh, trepidation about. I, I don't think there's a fear. I mean, I think there's a getting tired of being rejected, but I don't think there's a fear. I, I know a lot of women in our industry, and I don't think any of them are fearful. Mm-hmm. I think uh, it's more of getting ridiculously tired of being rejected. And, and that we can that is fixable? Oh, yeah, that's fixable. If we went to an anonymous uh, selection process, I bet you'd see that get better in a year. That would be a very quick way of fixing it. You know, there are companies that could help with that. There actually, there's a company in Canada that does, all they do is help you participate in anonymous hiring. So I bet they could help with the conference process too. So there, there are lots of new tools out there in that, in the, the realm of, of facing unconscious bias. And there are lots of companies that do that. So I think for sure that would be a great way of, of moving that ball forward is moving to an anonymous and you know what? If you told everyone that you were going to do it that way, more people of all different kinds of diversity would begin to submit. You'd be empowered to submit. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. I'm going to let you go on this. Where can people find the uh, information on the foundation? Is it open for participation from other companies? What, what oh, do yeah, you do? yes. So we have the cybersecuritydiversityfoundation.org is the website. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, just visit us. Uh, there's a Facebook page. Uh, the CDF, and uh, we'd love to, for more people to become involved. That would be great. Thank you very much, Michelle. Hope we can get to do this again when I learn more about uh, processes and details. Uh, it's, it was a little uh, in the weeds for me as it relates to SOC, but I thought we had a really good conversation on you know, just how much of a mess it is and what I think needs fixing. Hopefully the audience gets a That's interesting well- takeaways. Next time we'll do a demo for you so you can actually see it. Yeah, yeah, I'd love to see because, uh, c- I don't know, you give me the impression that you fixed everything and everywhere I talked to and everyone I've talked to said it's a complete giant cluster and a mess. So uh, well, I'd love to show you, so you'll have to come visit me. Thanks, Michelle. Appreciate it. Okay, take care. <laughs>